Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. Jefferson is someone who feels very deeply and who's also very sensitive. And he's also someone uh, who, for lack of a better way of saying it, builds castles in the sky. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Jeff Smock talking about the life and times of a teenage Thomas Jefferson. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by West Home Publishing, publishers of To the End of the World, Nathaniel Green, Charles Cornwallis, and The Race to the Dan by Andrew Waters. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Jeff Smock, talking about the life of the young Thomas Jefferson. There's a lot of great reasons to write a biography of someone. There's a lot of merit to studying a person's life, but one of my favorite types of studies are the kinds of studies where we can focus on just one part of a person's life. And with Thomas Jefferson, this giant of American history, there might be a lot to learn looking at just his teenage years. Sure, he wasn't writing the Declaration of Independence, but like all of us, major personality traits were still very apparent in his younger years that we'd see in his older uh, presidential days. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Jeff Smock. Jeff Smock, welcome back. Great to be back, Brady. Thank you. Tell us about your background. Well, first and foremost, I uh, teach middle school uh, U.S. history and English uh, just north of Seattle, Washington. I've been doing that for about six years now. We're finally uh, getting ready to go back into the classroom after being out of it for a year. Um, So I'm excited about that. Uh, I studied history at Pacific Lutheran University, and uh, I've had the fortune and the privilege to publish over a dozen articles uh, for the journal uh, over the last four or five years now. What first drew your interest into this topic? Well, there's a few things that kind of uh, pulled me towards it. Uh, Jefferson is always someone I've been just fascinated by. Uh, I read about him a lot when I was a, a younger kid, and I kind of saw some of the uh, some parts of him that I saw in myself or hoped to see in myself in terms of writing and, and that uh, kind of thing. Uh, as I grew a little older and, and uh, did some more research-type reading in on him, um, he's someone who I've uh, sometimes felt repulsed by and sometimes felt really sympathetic towards, and that kind of changes. Uh, kind of based on what period of his life I'm reading about or what he's been writing about and stuff like that. Um, and so every time I try and, and research and do an article on, on something else, I, I inevitably find my way uh, back towards writing on Jefferson. Uh, and then also teaching middle school kids, as I have now for about five years, five, six years now, uh, kind of adds to my interest in, in some of the most important founding fathers and what they were like when they were uh young and adolescent themselves, uh, one of the things that I try to uh, instill in my students is the idea that the people that we're reading about aren't all that different, no matter how long ago they might have lived, uh, than you are, than we are today. Uh, 
Uh, and so having some hardcore uh, evidence to bring to bear when I try and convince them of that really helps. Uh, so that's kind of an incentive to go back and, and read about some of these men uh, as they were as teenagers and adolescents. Uh, and I guess the third reason is that uh, Joseph J. Ellis is a is my favorite writer on the time period, and he's someone who's really influenced my thinking. Uh, he wrote a character sketch of Jefferson uh, about 20 years ago now, I think, uh, called the American Sphinx. It won some awards. Uh, and I think he really got to the personality, the core of Jefferson's personality as much as you can. And he did something similar to that with, uh, with John Adams. And so um, those are two of my favorite founders to read about. Uh, for various reasons. And so uh, I guess I kind of found it uh, as a mission to kind of go back and, and find out uh, who and how the men that he describes in his books, how they came to be that way, what drove them to uh, have the characters that they did, the internal stimuli, the external stimuli, and what really shaped these men to become uh, the finished product, so to speak, that we all know about today. Tell us about Thomas Jefferson's early life. Sure. Uh, for someone like Jefferson who has as many contradictions and, and ambiguities uh, as he has and had, uh, it's really kind of appropriate that he kind of grew up in a uh, kind of a contradiction or an ambiguity itself. Um, he's a third generation American. Uh, his great grandfather, his grandfather, excuse me, had come to uh, the American colonies from Wales um, and he grows up as a gentleman uh, or amongst the upper crust of Virginian society, uh, but he does so on the frontier uh, at the time, at least. His father, uh, Peter Jefferson, uh, moved the family uh, to his boyhood plantation or what would become his boyhood plantation uh, called Shadwell. Uh, and this is in the Piedmont region of colonial Virginia. And uh, as Jefferson describes in his autobiography, they were only the third or fourth settlers in this area of Virginia at the time. Uh, and so Peter Jefferson, his father, really cuts this plantation uh, out of the wilderness. Um, he, Jefferson uh, describes his father and throughout his life in pretty affectionate terms. Uh, Peter Jefferson is kind of a Paul Bunyan type, according to his son, Thomas. Uh, he's physically strong. Uh, there's one story where uh, Peter Jefferson orders his slaves to tear down a, a structure and they confess that they can't do it. And according to Thomas Jefferson, Peter Jefferson pulls on the rope and pulls down the building himself. Um, and so uh, Peter Jefferson is a self-made man in many ways um, and kind of leads to the Jeffersons becoming uh, one of the more elevated families in the colonial Virginian society. And um, he teaches himself uh, he valued, Peter Jefferson values learning, uh, and according to Thomas, it's because he didn't have any formal learning himself, uh, and, but he wants it, uh, his sons to have it, and so he uh, brings books into the uh, Jefferson home. Uh, he brings uh, music lessons. He sends his son to tutors in nearby um, uh, vicinity so that they can get the classical education that's expected of gentlemen at this time in Virginian society. Um, but he's also, uh, Thomas Jefferson is also one of uh, several siblings. He's got six sisters, two of them are older than him, uh, one younger brother. Um, and then his father dies when he's about uh, nine, 10 years old. 
and he's left at home as kind of the uh, master of the house, so to speak, uh, at just a young age. And he has his mother and then his two older sisters above him. Uh, and that's kind of where he is until he uh, convinces his guardians to let him go to William and Mary uh, in colonial Williamsburg uh, and kind of get out of the, uh, the isolation of his home on the, on the frontier. Uh, and that's kind of where the story picks up uh, in my article. What kind of person would you describe uh, as the young Thomas Jefferson being coming from uh, a job where you work with young people yourself? Well, uh, I will start by confessing that we don't have a, a ton of evidence on uh, Jefferson in his younger days and his adolescent days. Um, there's a fire in his old, the home that his father builds, and it destroys many of the letters that we have. Uh, so the evidence is pretty fragmentary, and we have to kind of construct a, 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 an understanding of Jefferson's character kind of from the fragments that are left. Um, but based on what we have in the letters uh, that we can look at and some of the um, descriptions that we can uh, glean uh, from people around him, uh, as a younger person, he's very bookish. Um, he grows up around books. Uh, as I mentioned, his father brings a lot of them into the, to the home. Uh, he develops a love of music. He's given the opportunity to uh, receive violin lessons, and it's something that he will kind of retreat to uh, when he uh, is feeling uh, down or put upon, so to speak. Uh, he's tall. He's thin. Uh, he's a bit gangly. Uh, I would say he's kind of awkward and aloof. Um, he's kind of isolated, as I mentioned, from the uh, coastal um, society. Uh, that tends to dominate the, the colony of Virginia at this time. Um, and so uh, in many ways, I would say that he's, he's kind of, if you have a uh, abstract picture of a, an American teenager in your mind, he fits, he fits a lot of that criteria, uh, shy. Um, uh, he has some uh, mood swings that we can probably talk about a little bit later. Um, but yeah, he's very much a, very much a teenager. You say that the young Jefferson loved melodrama. I think that's something that we can all remember from our teenage years. Could you talk about that? Yeah. Reading the first, uh, the handful of letters that we have of Jefferson that he, that still exact, that still survived uh, from his teenage years. Uh, it's a, it's very much a more exaggerated version of the, the older Jefferson, uh, that history tends to take notice of. Um, Jefferson's personality throughout his life, he's, he's sensitive, uh, he's easily wounded. Um, and when uh, bad things befall him, he tends to attribute it to uh, malign actors uh, outside. So uh, his second extant letter uh, is written uh, just after he's left uh, college at William and Mary, he's there for two years from 1760 to 1762. Um, he really enjoys his time at William and Mary. He quickly uh, becomes a favorite of his professors and his tutors and, his, and I think his classmates. Uh, he's often invited to dinner at the governor, the lieutenant governor's uh, table. Uh, and his mind really uh, takes off during this time. And then after uh, he leaves school, he kind of uh, drops into this, uh, depression might be too strong of a word, but gloom. He's isolated again. Uh, when he writes this Christmas Eve letter, this Christmas letter, he's staying with a, a brother-in-law and his sister at their home. Uh, and so he's easily 
descent into gloom and, and it's a rainy night this Christmas night. And there's this series of what he says are very uh, intense calamities that befall him. Uh, number one, there's a leaky roof and it happens to be just above the biggest leak happens to be just above where he lays his watch down. Uh, you have rats who get into the room at night and go through some of his socks and uh, eat some of his papers and stuff. And so he just writes this long letter to a friend that he had from college. And he's basically uh, creating this very melodramatic case that, that Satan himself is persecuting him and his enemies are, uh, to paraphrase his words, are, are getting together when he lays his head down to sleep and figuring out ways that they can persecute him. Uh, and so this kind of uh, continues throughout a very long extended letter. Um, and you almost uh, find it pitiable at a certain point. It's just, it's so uh, melodramatic and extreme, uh, disproportionate to what actually happens. Uh, and then as you kind of follow him on his next few letters, his, his moods kind of swing from thinking the devil's persecuting him into the next letter. Uh, he's pretty sure that uh, no one cares about him and that he's isolated and he's alone and, he tells his friend, I'm writing to you, but I don't see why I should bother because neither you or even I would care about what's happening to me. Uh, and all through this, uh, we kind of get to the real root issue of his uh, his sadness and his issues, and that's that he's fallen for a, uh, a sister of one of his uh, college classmates. Her name's Rebecca Burwell. Um, when the, the leaky roof on Christmas uh, destroys his watch, what really gets to him and what's kind of the root of the whole melodramatic sequence of events that he describes is the fact that he has a uh, small miniature of her in this watch and it's completely destroyed uh, by the rainwater dripping through his roof. Uh, and so even though he tries to uh, switch from emotion to emotion in many of these teenage letters, it all ends up coming back to, to Rebecca Burwell, this woman who he loves and who he's determined uh, to marry, to propose to to make Mrs. Jefferson. And he's just, he can't regulate his emotions. Um, uh, he's very lovesick, uh, kind of desperate and pathetic even. Uh, and it's, it's very much an awkward, clumsy, um, overly dramatic teenage uh, love affair that, that, that comes through some of these letters uh, that I read. What was his education like? Uh, it, he, as I mentioned, uh, he's, he grows up around books. He has a couple tutors uh, when he's uh, very young. Uh, one of them he doesn't uh, respect that much. He says he has just an indifferent understanding of, of Latin. Um, he receives the traditional education that uh, young children and young men of the upper crust of society would uh, learn back then. You study Latin, Greek, French, the classics. Uh, and then when he attends William and Mary, um, he comes under the influence of two, uh, two professors in specific who are some of the most uh, respected uh, Enlightenment minds on the American continent at this time, and Jonathan Small and George Weiss. And Small is a distinguished mathematician who, according to Jefferson, is learned in all the branches of science. Uh, Weiss is the most distinguished lawyer in America at this time, or one of them at least, uh, and he influences Jefferson towards not only studying the law, uh, itself, but also studying some of the historical and political issues uh, that 
uh, explain why the law is what it is. And uh, he learns a lot from these two men, not in the classroom, but uh, as I mentioned earlier at their dinner table, um, he's invited to the, the governor, the lieutenant governor, uh, it's friends with these two men, and they tend to have dinner with each other, and they have these conversations. Uh, they bring out the fine bottles of wine, good food, uh, pull back the tablecloth, and they have these discussions on all kinds of, of topics of the day. Uh, this is also a time where you don't have the specifically defined uh, disciplines uh, that we would today, uh, science and history and philosophy and mathematics and the law. Uh, they tend to all fun, fall under the umbrella of, of philosophy at this time. And so it's it's very much a uh, conversation and dialogue of polymath that he uh, kind of develops uh, and grows himself, grows into uh, during his time at William and Mary. And the dinner party and these uh, intimate conversations is the thing that he cherishes most, or one of the things that he cherishes most in his life. And it's it's kind of a, a a scene or a tableau that he tries to recreate throughout his entire life, uh, public and private. Uh, and he goes to great expense to uh, do that, uh, whether it's at Monticello or during his time as president or his time as, uh, as uh, the American representative in France. Uh, and so this really instills in Jefferson this, this ethos of the Enlightenment, so to speak, where uh, you arrive at truth through dialogue, uh, through open-mindedness, through the scientific inquiry and observation. Uh, it's, it's kind of how he rejects the ideas of tradition uh, and dogmatic truths that have been passed down and, and authority. Uh, and so all of that really, really starts uh, during his time, during his dinners uh, as a student at William & Mary. How was Jefferson with his peers? You know, we don't have a lot of evidence how he would have uh, interacted with his peers at William and Mary, we kind of have to to fill in the blanks uh, and kind of extrapolate backwards. Um, he, we can deduce from the fact that he befriends and, and falls under the uh, tutelage of of Small and Weiss and and some of the other more distinguished men in society uh, that he's an attractive figure to those around him. That he he can be charming, uh, and we know this from people who encountered some of. Uh, the older, more mature Jefferson later and some of the accounts that they left. Um, he's, he's sparkling in, in conversations at dinner tables when there's small groups. Uh, he's someone who can't stand the, the hurly-burly, so to speak, of, of large crowds or uh, sessions of Congress or the House of Burgesses or stuff like that. He doesn't like that, but when he's in a, a more intimate atmosphere with friends, uh, and other figures, he tends, his personality really comes out, and the shy, aloof Jefferson uh, gave way or gives way to a much more ingratiating and, and charming, uh, a sparkling conversationalist type of Jefferson. Um, so he really thrives in those settings, uh, and that, I think, we can conclude, uh, starts with his time uh, at, at William and Mary. It's his real first time where he's uh, coming to his own as a as a um, as an individual and as an important figure uh, in colonial Virginia and then later throughout the thirteen colonies. How do these events, in your opinion, shape the man he would become? Well, um, as I mentioned, uh, he Jefferson is someone who feels very deeply and who's also very sensitive. Uh, 
Um, and he's also someone uh, who, for lack of a better way of saying it, builds castles in the sky. He kind of constructs these personalized uh, and personal utopias. Uh, the dinner conversations he has at, at William and Mary with his professors uh, is one example, and it's one that he tries to recreate uh, throughout his entire life. Um, another example would be the uh, more domestic uh, utopias that he tries to create, where he's more of the patriarchal uh, type figure, uh, and he has children and grandchildren around him, and it's this blissful uh, scene of domestic uh, felicity. Um, and he's someone, uh, as he becomes more of a, a famous person, not only in Virginia, but throughout the 13 colonies, uh, the clamor of public life, uh, kind of closes in around him. And this starts kind of when he's a practicing attorney in colonial Virginia. He's pretty successful at it, but he doesn't do it for long, uh, because he just doesn't, doesn't like at all the, uh, the disputing and the arguing and all that that happens in a courtroom. Uh, he's much more interested in the theoretical aspect of the law. Um, and so kind of as he develops uh, from a teenager to an adult to a figure who is famous throughout the colonies, who's a member of not only the upper crust of uh, colonial Virginia, but becomes a member of the House of Burgesses. Uh, he writes a tract called the Summary View of uh, the British are the American rights, and he uh, personally attacks the king, and he and his pen uh, so impresses everyone throughout the colonies that he earns himself um, uh, a position as the Virginia representative in the Continental Congress, and then he becomes, gets appointed to the uh, committee that adopts the Declaration of Independence, and uh, he's deputized basically to write the whole thing himself by the other members. Uh, and so as he becomes more famous, uh, the noise around him uh, becomes greater. And to kind of wall this off, he starts to develop, uh, build these walls around himself, both mentally and emotionally, and, and even at Monticello, uh, physically, uh, he creates a study that's basically isolated from the rest of the house, and it, it's pretty hard to get to. Um, and we start to see this develop uh, through some of the more events that happened to him as a teenager that I kind of talk about in the article that to the teenage Jefferson seem like they are the end of the world, but as he grows older and, and goes through actual heartbreak and, and loss and, and defeat and controversy, uh, those become much greater. And so we see, uh, we see him taking the first steps as a teenager in his letters uh, trying to set up his natural coping me mechanisms uh, to wall himself off from that. And we also see uh, in one of his last letters that's left uh, of him as a teenager, uh, some of the physical effects uh, of what happens to him when he isn't able to keep the, um, the, out the reality that's outside these uh, personal utopias of his, when they come crashing in on him, um, he has some, suffers some very physical effects. Uh, when he finds out that Rebecca Burwell, this woman who he spends over a year pining for, when he finds out that she has uh, given her hand to another uh, young gentleman in Virginia, uh, in his letter where he announces it to a friend, he, he tries to portray himself as a stoic, 
He says he wishes her every happiness, but then he also mentions that he's been suffering from this uh, extended headache. Uh, and we see this pop up uh, several times uh, later in Jefferson's life. Uh, whenever he suffers some type of personal loss or whenever uh, the weight of his uh, public life becomes overly oppressive on him, uh, we tend to see him break down and have these more extended headaches, and he will withdraw not only uh, emotionally but physically. Um, he will ultimately get married, uh, and his wife will die in the middle of childbirth, uh, towards the end of the War of Independence, and he becomes inconsolable. Uh, and eventually, uh, the only emotional way he can cope with this is to accept a uh, ministerial position as a, an American representative in Europe. Uh, and so the Jefferson that fights and constructs walls to keep reality away from his personal utopias, and the Jefferson who breaks down when he can't keep those out, uh, that's the Jefferson that starts to emerge from these first uh, handful of letters that uh, we still have of him as a teenager. How do you feel this article helps us understand the Revolutionary Era better? Well, that's a really, it's a really good question. Uh, there's, there's a never-ending debate uh, amongst historians and, and people who enjoy history about whether or not uh, individuals can really uh, change or shape the course of history or whether history is directed more by impersonal uh, macro type social and economic and political events. Uh, and I think if you're looking for evidence that individuals can really change the course of history, uh, then Thomas Jefferson and, and some of the other colleagues of his in that generation um, are really good proof of that. Uh, Jefferson, the person that we know him as, is the author of the Declaration of Independence, as uh, the third president of the United States, as the leader of a uh, one of the two parties in what would become the two-party system, uh, the seeds of that Jefferson really start to uh, sprout in the teenage letters. Um, so those internal coping mechanisms that I just mentioned uh, that he develops in his youth really shape how uh, the public Jefferson of later years uh, acts and how he responds. And that, in turn, I think, uh, really uh, shapes the course of history uh, at that time. So when he, uh, uh, one of his coping mechanisms and his, his biggest coping mechanism um, was keeping his distance uh, from uh, the reality that was happening around him. Uh, he likes to think and speak in abstractions. And uh, when he's writing about the events and experiencing the events, that are happening around him uh, during the American Revolution uh, and after, uh, he's usually doing it from a distance, from an elevation. Uh, so it's impersonal to him. Uh, and so the positive part of that, I think, is that he's able to uh, shift the paradigm of the conflict between the 13 colonies and Great Britain uh, because he's looking at it from that, that abstract height. Uh, and so he redefines it from a being a tax dispute or a uh, minor dispute over who gets to represent and who represents who uh, to a historical conflict uh, where these 13 colonies are not only fighting to be able to vote on their own taxes, but they are fighting for self-evident truths uh, for the rights of all men and that all men are created equal 
and he really helps redefine that struggle. And that not only helps Americans make sense of what they've done, uh, but it also inspires events throughout the world, the French Revolution, the Haitian Revolution. Uh, to this day, we still have every time a group in America uh, is is working to achieve their equal rights and their equal pr- place in our society, they tend to point back towards Jefferson's words. Uh, and so the the walls that he developed, those emotional walls uh, that, that distance him from the nitty gritty of reality uh, help shape the Jefferson who's able to write uh, the, to become the author of America, essentially. Uh, but there's also a negative aspect to that as well, I think. Uh, when you keep your distance from others, as Jefferson does, when you avoid the, uh, the seedier aspects of political discourse, the horse trading, the debates, uh, the log rolling and all that, um, it becomes very easy for you to view uh, people who are um, your opponents or who disagree with you as not people who have their own interests and their own perspectives, but as uh, malign or evil actors. And so um, the, the negative side, I think, of his, his distance uh, is that he participates and he's one of the leading actors in turning the, uh, the two-party system, the, the first two-party system in America that develops into a very uh, kind of toxic um, situation where both sides are accusing the other of basically trying to undo the, the American Revolution or instill anarchy in America. Uh, and so it, it, I think Jefferson very uh, directly is responsible for uh, creating not only the two-party system, uh, but for uh, coloring it in a way that uh, is something that none of the founders really wanted uh, when they were envisioning uh, what they were creating in the Constitution and the War for Independence and all that. So I think all of this starts to develop when he's a teenager uh, in those first few letters. And so I think uh, what you first start to discover with Jefferson in those letters uh, has a very subtle uh, but profound effect on the American Revolution uh, and the scope of American history uh, all the way up till, till today. Jeff Smock, thanks again. Thanks for having me. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.